Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I want to bring in our chief content officer, Marty Schenker, Bloomberg's very own and one of our finest, who knows DC better than most. Great to have you with us, Marty. Talk to us about how significant this is. Walk us through the seven counts that Roger Stone is facing and what we need to know. Well, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, one thing you didn't mention in terms of the overlay, Tom, is the legislative investigations that have begun of the Trump administration uh, Elijah Cummings has launched an investigation into security clearances that yes. were granted. That's yet another overlay of uh, the things that are confronting this president um, that we can't ignore. So in terms of the indictment, uh, as many have observed, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. And in this indictment, it, it's talking mostly about how Roger Stone was not forthright with investigators and tried to hide... Right his communications with WikiLeaks, essentially. Mark, well, Marty, you have always corrected my fractured journalistic English, so I'm going to go after our lead story. A self-described political showman and dirty trickster. How Nixonian. Marty Schenker, define a political showman and dirty trickster. Yeah, well, you know, Roger Stone, uh, you know, we... You described him leading into this segment as a Republican strategist. Yeah, but he was really on the fringes of the Republican Party. He would, uh, you know, through his website and conspiracy theories, try to uh, upset the conventional wisdom about, you know, and stretch the facts. Um, so he, he was, at, he's a very right. flamboyant fellow and um, and for months has been saying he expected to be indicted well, by Mueller, and then it happened this morning. Okay, but the linkage here, and, and folks, trust me, I'm the amateur. Mr. Schenker's the pro. We moved from Mr. Stone to Mr. Gates, Rick right. Gates, and then we moved to Mr. Manafort, who I believe is back in court this morning. I'm in Switzerland. What do I know? Would you explain to our audience, Marty Schenker, how you get from Stone to Gates to Manafort to Manafort to Stone, etc.? What is that Venn diagram? Well, let's not forget Paul Manafort was running the Trump campaign in the middle of 2016. Rick Gates was his assistant. Uh, Roger Stone and Paul Manafort had a history. They actually had a consulting firm together in Washington some years ago. So there is a personal and actual business connection between Manafort and Roger Stone. Um, And in the indictment, which does not name anyone besides Roger Stone, they talk about communications with high-ranking officials yeah. of the Trump campaign, who I could only assume is Paul Manafort. Well, I mean, you, yeah, I just did a word search, uh, Marty Schenker, because of the vast technology John Farrell allows me to have. And there are 29 uses of the word Trump within the indictment. I, I mean, and again, folks, this is a lengthy indictment. I'm looking at 24 pages, uh, uh, Marty Schenker, 29 words, but they're about the Trump organization. Define Roger Stone is the Trump organization relationship versus any relationship with the government. The government relationship isn't there, right? That is correct. Roger Stone resigned from any formal role with the campaign in 2015 abruptly 
as our story says. Uh, but as the indictment spells out, he kept an informal relationship with high-ranking officials of the campaign throughout the campaign. Right. And it, one part of that indictment that's interesting to me is that a senior member of the Trump campaign, who was not identified, instructed Roger Stone to go back to his source, uh, which we assume is WikiLeaks, to find out if more damaging information was coming on Hillary right. Clinton. What is organization one? Are we guessing? Yeah, that's WikiLeaks. I mean, it's it's described uh, in the indictment as being run by an individual who is residing in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. I can't imagine it's anybody else but Julius Assange. Yes, it mentions here under uh, John, this is page seven, section 15, item E, talking about, quote, outside the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Marty, is this a sign that this investigation is closer to an end game or a sign that it's just getting started? You know, there's been a lot of narrative lately that he is winding up. I don't know that that is true. What is clear is that Bob Mueller's strategy, and it's a classic one when you're talking about organized crime, you start from the outside and you move your way in. And that is exactly what Robert Mueller is doing. He's moving closer and closer to the inner circle, whether that's well, Trump's family or Trump himself remains to be seen. Well, Marty, I don't mean to catch you on words if you're not briefed on this, but how close is Mr. Stone to the peripheral family, to Mr. and Mrs. Kushner, uh, to the, the Trump sons? Is there a close... Florida, let's let's hang out together relationship, or was it a what I would perceive from Mr. Manafort a more business reach? Uh, I Tom, I I can't speak to that Fair. directly, but Fair. I do think that you know Roger Stone was in the orbit of the Trump uh, campaign very early, and so to the extent that the family was deeply involved in the campaign, it's hard to imagine that there 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 wasn't a personal relationship as well. Marty, just as a final question for you, Washington, D.C., of course, is going to have a very, very different story to get into today compared to the obsession of the government shutdown of the last few weeks. Do you just assume that the likelihood of reopening the government anytime soon just got kicked down the road a little bit? I don't know that this has a direct impact, but, uh, you know, independently of this, it was my feeling that uh, uh, while we got a glimmer of hope yesterday, I think we're still in for at least weeks of shutdown. That's a that's a key question. I, I mean, John, I think it's a brilliant question. Very quickly, Marty, can we link the shutdown to legal actions against Mr. Stone? I don't think we can do that. No, can you we? can't. <clears throat> yeah. No, you can't. But you can make the observation as you did earlier that this is just another distraction yeah. that is okay. keeping us from moving forward. Have an eventful day. Marty Schenker with us, head of all of our content. He'll be spending the majority of his day, no doubt, coordinating a multi-article response to dive deeper into this indictment. With the economy minister of Russia, here is John Farrow.
Thank you very much. As we wrap up our week in Davos, Switzerland at the World Economic Forum, I'm pleased to say that I am joined by the Russian Economy Minister, Maxim Oreshkin. Minister, great to catch up with you. Yes, Initially, we didn't think you'd be coming because the committee here at Davos were banning three prominent Russian businessmen, and here you are. You are, I believe, the, the leader of the delegation here for Russia. Have you been received through the week? How's it been? Well, everything was perfect. A lot of uh, bilateral meetings with uh, other countries, with companies, so everything's good. The sanctions on Russia from the Europeans and the United States are still there. What kind of impact? Well, oh, it's, a, it's a different story. The sanctions uh, and the, you know the move from the U.S. side and from the European side. It's already different because, you know, uh, Europe is trying these days to be more independent to have its independent policy. So it's already a different story. Well, how do you see that playing out in terms of the removal of sanctions? Do you think the Europeans will move them back? Well, we are not talking uh, about that. We are talking about uh, improving our relations, improving our trade. If you look at the past couple of years, the volume of trade between Russia and Europe plus 40%. So it's uh, positive dynamics. It's also investments. It's also, you know, uh, cooperation technological, uh, on technological agenda. So it's moving on. So you're clear, drawing a clear distinction between the approach of the Europeans and the United States yeah. here. Are you more hopeful about the relationship with Europe than the United States? Well, uh, what we see is that Europe is becoming much more pragmatic. Of course, uh, you know, two main factors are behind that. The Brexit on one side and the actions from the US side, for example, the uh, tariffs that they implemented on the Europe in terms of steel and aluminium. So all those steps, uh, you know, forces the Europe to be more pragmatic and more oriented on its own goals. So the optics might look better. What does it mean for the substance? What's your base case for what's going to happen, the relationship between well, Europe and Russia? What we, what we are doing is actually, like I've said, Trade to know is growing. We have, you know, a, lot, a number of uh, big investment projects uh, in Europe, uh, which we are doing with uh, European partners. It's the Nord Stream. We are building, building a couple of nuclear plants. It's in Finland. It's in Hungary. Uh, we are doing joint projects with mainly French companies and other companies uh, in Russian North. It's the Arctic LNG. So, you know, cooperation is growing step by step. Some people from the outside looking in might say that the Russian economy, the trend of where things are heading, isn't great at the moment. What would you say back to that? What's your read on the economy? at the moment? Well, uh, our estimate of the growth <coughs> for 2018, it's 2% growth. And what we have created in the past several years is that we have sustainable and stable growth going forward. On per capita basis, it's the same pace as the world is growing. So it's uh, more than 2% because we have a negative uh, demography tendency in Russia. And we actually prefer to have a stable longer-term dynamic rather than to have plus 7, minus 6 uh, volatility. Do you have accommodative monetary policy at the moment? Well, the monetary policy is uh, purely aimed at delivering stable inflation dynamics. We have a target of 4%. Uh, the recent data for 2018 is 4.3. So we are at the, at the target level. There's often downside risk to growth as well. We see them in Russia too. You've had a couple of rate hikes at the back end of last year coming into this year as well. Is that helpful? Well, we expect that this year uh, growth in Russia will be weaker, so we expect only 1.3%, because there are, of course, external factors. The global growth is slowing substantially, but there are also some internal factors. We, for example, addressing long-term issues, we have uh, increased VAT beginning with January the 1st, so it will yeah. be weighing negatively on the growth dynamics, especially in the first One part. of the global factors is oil. Oil is stabilized. Russia has quite clearly... Oil is not uh, you know, a story anymore for Russia, because, you know, four years ago, it was $115 per barrel yep. oil price that, that is needed for Russia. Well, Minister, let me get to the question first. Yeah. Now, now it's 45 so... Let me get to the question first and talk about the relationship with OPEC. Um, clearly, it's a relationship that has built up over the last year. Is it a relationship that you see working in the future as well, something that we can solidify in the coming years? It's definitely a long-term relations. We 
always pursue long-term relations with any partner that we have on different agendas. So OPEC, OPEC is not uh, you know, something unique. So we will be doing long-term relations with OPEC. So I want to talk about your relations with another big oil producer, Venezuela. The United States no longer recognizing Maduro as the leader of that country. Some reports this morning suggesting that the Europeans are moving towards doing the same thing. Russia has said to the United States not to intervene in the situation with Venezuela. What's the economic relationship with Venezuela at the moment? How much money do they owe you? So you actually asked the question that should not be asked to the Ministry of Economy, but uh, more to the Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs. Of course, there are some relations uh, in terms of cooperation between, especially the oil industry, between Russia and Venezuela. So. That's the only thing. I'm asking the economy minister what the economic relationship is with Venezuela. Well, in terms of what impact it will have on uh, Russia's growth, close to zero. Yeah. And the oil price? What could happen there if Venezuela well, there ultimately is if Maduro gets toppled? A lot of factors which are impacting the uh, you know, dynamics of the oil market. What we expect is that oil prices, of course, will not go up, but unlikely they will go uh, dramatically lower than uh, what we see these days. But, but for us, it's not that important anymore because the oil price that is needed for the Russian economy is around $40, $45 per barrel. And the relationship, the economic relationship, seemingly not that important to you either from what you've just well, said. Well, relations with Europe, of course, uh, or with China, with Japan, with India, there is a big list of countries ahead of uh, Venezuela. The Russian economy minister there, Maxim Oreshkin, joining us in Davos, Switzerland. Sir, thank you very much. Guys, back to you. John Farrell, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate that. Uh, this morning, speaking with the economy minister of Russia. I'm not sure this was our interview of the day four days ago. It is the interview of the day for the United States of America, for Canada, for North America, and for all of South America is Venezuela unwinds. Ricardo Hausman is a definitive Latin American economist of his Venezuela, where he's a former Venezuelan minister of planning, former head of the presidential office of coordination and planning, and on short notice, the gentleman who founded the phrase original sin with Barry Eichegreen joins us. What was Mr. Maduro's original sin? Well, uh, he has many, but his latest one, and the one that is most significant for the present, is the fact that he stole the election in May of this year uh, for a second term that was supposed to start on January 10th. Uh, because no country, no decent country recognized that election, as of January 10th, he's no longer perceived as a legitimate president of Venezuela. And according to the Constitution, if there is no president, right. the president of the National Assembly has to take over okay. on an interim basis to organize a transition back to a, a, an electoral solution. You were wired into this as no one I know. Let me get the score right now. Mr. Maduro has the support of the generals, the senior generals, and the gentleman taking over has the support of America, Canada, and does he have the support of the military? So um, the president who's taking over has the legitimacy, the institutional legitimacy of having been elected by a national assembly that was popularly elected, has original legitimacy. So first he has that support. He has the right. institutional support of the only elected power in the country right now. Number two, he has massive popular support. You've seen these enormous demonstrations on January 23rd. Within the military, away from the generals? One second. He has 
massive international support. I just heard a few minutes ago that the EU decided to recognize Guaido as the president of the country. That follows on Canada, the US, Costa Rica, Panama, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Chile, Argentina, Brazil, yeah. even Albania has come out in support of Guaido. So, so he has massive international support. The only support that he's lacking at the present is military support. And the military are several hundred thousand people. They live in Venezuela. They, on average, think like Venezuelans. So this is the attempt of Maduro and his top clique to maintain over right. power because this, they are essentially well, a criminal pr organization. Professor Hausman, let me bring in my colleague, John Farrell. Well, Professor, the reports I'm seeing from Europe at the moment is that Spain will recognize Guaido if Maduro does not call a vote. I, I assume you think that he's not going to call a vote anytime soon. Would I be right? Well, I wouldn't like to see a vote that is, call, is called with Maduro in power. Uh, Maduro uh, already organized elections while he was in power, and we know what they look like. The last election, uh, he had uh, the main political parties uh, um, outlawed. He had the main candidates either in jail or in exile. So it, 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 if, if it's an election called by Maduro, it won't be a free and fair election. That's why we need President Guaido on a transitional basis to be the one who is in power while elections are being organized. Military support, as Tom points out, is what President Maduro has. Is that sufficient to keep power? I don't think so. I don't think that the military can defend a president that has no legitimacy, no popular legitimacy, that has no international support and has no popular support. This is a very, very dangerous course for the armed forces. And if I were to bet, it's a course that they will not be able to sustain. So how do you see this playing out in the coming weeks? I pray for a Ferdinand Marcos solution where they just decide to leave. There is a Monroe Doctrine which I believe is from a few years ago. James Monroe John was on the boat when Washington crossed the Delaware. He was holding the flag. Okay. Thanks, Tom. Fifth president Thanks, of the United Tom. States. We hear of Russia coming to the rescue of Mr. Maduro, maybe even China. I'm speculating there, but there is a Monroe Doctrine. Can Russia project their opinion on the collapse of this nation in the Caribbean against the Monroe Doctrine? Say, uh, what I can say about Russia is that the Venezuelan debt to the Russian government is relatively small, and it went into funding uh, uh, arms, uh, the Sukhoi um, fighter jets and submarines and stuff like that. Uh, the bulk of the interest of Russia is interest by Russian oligarchs like Rosneft and some mining, shady mining companies uh, that want to do some shady deals in Venezuela by getting allocations of, right. of concessions that we don't know about. Russia is supporting Maduro, and they've said so. China has said that they are going to sit on the fence. They always do on the international stage, seemingly. Well, I don't think they could have taken a different position. I appreciate the fact that they've decided to sit on, on the fence. For the Russians, when they tell the U.S. not to intervene, does that achieve anything? Uh, I think um, uh, this is just political and it's PR, but they cannot yeah. they cannot uh, bail out Venezuela. Venezuela is too big for for Russia's uh, difficult financial situation. Let's go back to my childhood. We know of no more important problems anywhere, anytime, 
than the problems of our neighbors. We want to see our relations with them be the very best. Lyndon Baines Johnson, December of 1963, as he tried to figure out what to do, and then two years on in the Dominican Republic as well. Why is this different as America projects to Caracas than all the other attempts we've made in the 20th century? I, I think we shouldn't play uh, the U.S. as a main actor here. The main actors here are, it's the whole of Latin America. I would even say that it is because the economic catastrophe of Venezuela has transformed into humanitarian catastrophe that has led to uh, what I estimate to be over 5 million Venezuelans to have left the country. That means that it is now the Venezuelan refugees are a top issue in Colombia and okay. Ecuador and well, Peru. So it's a re the whole region needs a political transition in Venezuela because Venezuelans right. cannot take it and the rest but of Latin this, America this cannot This is critical, take it. Ricardo Hausman. You're going to be on every committee to get this solved. Which global institutions come to the rescue to rebuild a totally fractured economy? IMF, World Bank, so or is we, it the U.S. once again? We have been in touch with all of them. I have been in touch with all of them. I've been working for the last three years on a morning after plan for Venezuela. The President Guaido has a morning after plan. Are you we've in collaborated. Touch with him now? We've talked to the IMF. We've talked to World Bank. We've Have you talked, talked to, to Mr. Guaido? Absolutely. How yeah. recently? Yeah. Recently? Yes. And what's he said? About what? About the situation and what he wants to do next. Well, um, I mean, what he wants to do... I mean, do you refer to him as President Guaido, but of course we have President Maduro at the same time, and I'm just wondering what he thinks he can achieve in the very near term. Well, if you, if you don't want to confuse him, call Maduro the, the, the dictator. So, um, uh, And that, folks, is classic house. Pre <laughs> Pre President Guaido is, um, he, he has appointed charge d'affaires in the countries that have recognized him. The first order of business as we speak yeah. is to stop the Maduro government from liquidating international uh, assets of the country and steal them. They're trying to move $1.2 billion in you gold that's in London right now? as we speak. Yeah. So it's very important that all the countries that have recognized President Guaido don't allow this illegitimate agents okay, of well, this John government Taylor, This to, is important. To John Taylor, Stanford University, was an expert on this after 9-11. How does the United States assist Venezuela in, as you say, the theft of this gold? What do we do right now? What, what the U.S. has to do, what the IMF has to do, was what the U.K. have to do is not transfer assets that are owned by the Republic of Venezuela, mm -hmm. of Venezuela on orders of people who do not right. represent the government of Venezuela. They should be okay. on orders of people who are We're, the legal representatives of President Guaido that they recognize as the legitimate okay. president Ricardo of Venezuela. Ricardo Hausman, we're going to run out of time. One final question. Investors desperately are needed to come back to Venezuela. How does that happen? How do you get the catalyst to get the wonderful Venezuela of old back again? We need to empower Venezuelans with economic freedoms and economic rights. And we need international financial support to uh, eliminate the balance of payments constraints so we can get more intermediate right. inputs, more raw materials, so that we can get more output and recover the Venezuela. Well. Ricardo Hausman, thank you so much, of Harvard University, of course, formerly with an earlier government of Venezuela, and we need to thank our Eric Martin with his years of experience in Latin America for arranging uh, this interview on very, very short uh, notice.
This is what we love to do at Bloomberg Surveillance. We were honored to have Ricardo Hossman with us from Harvard University earlier today. He has served in public office in his Venezuela and now the authority in America on uh, Venezuela. Shannon O'Neill. Uh, the Council on Foreign Relations. Wonderful, Dr. O'Neill. Thrilled to have you with us. I go back to your Bloomberg opinion piece uh, of September of last year. U.S. military intervention in Venezuela would be a disaster with a black and white picture of my childhood. We always get it wrong. How can we help the new Venezuela and not do what we've done time after time after time? Well, this is a big challenge right now. We have a Trump administration that's coming out and recognizing an individual, the head of the Congress, as the legitimate president of, of Venezuela, while we have Maduro uh, still in firm control of the reins of power there with the military backing him, at least so far. So the question here is where can the United States come in? And as you mentioned in that op-ed, I don't think it's a military intervention. It is really to help the Venezuelan people, three million of whom have left the country in the last few years, uh, and helping them where they're going rather than looking internally, uh, particularly in a military way, to Venezuela. Uh, Professor Hausman literally on the phone here in Davos, Shannon, talking to the new leadership of Venezuela if they finally completely take over. Daniel Jurgen with us on the Venezuela that once was and the challenges of oil. Where do you presume the billions of dollars would come from to assist this nation forward? No, some of it would come from the United States when we see, if we see a new leadership there and a new government come in, some would come from that oil sector. Venezuela has reserves larger than those of Saudi Arabia, so there is wealth there to bring out and to help rebuild that nation. But it would have to be an international commitment as well, both financially but also in rebuilding the basic infrastructure, the bureaucracies. There's so many things to rebuild in Venezuela that have been destroyed over the last 20 years. So, Shannon, one of the unique aspects of this situation right now is that Venezuela, in effect, has two presidents, which almost is like you have no president. I'm not really sure how the, comp- how the country goes from here next steps. But what do you think has to happen out of Venezuela in the near term to give the rest of the world some clarity on maybe how the rest of the world can help? Well, we need to see where these two competing forces go. So right now we have a de jure president in Guaido who has announced himself as head of the Congress, but we have a de facto president in Maduro who is still in the presidential palace and at least so far with the military behind them. So what we should be watching over the next hours and days and weeks is what happens to the protests in the streets? Do people continue to come out? And what happens with the security forces, with the military, with the National Guard, with others? Do they stay with the Maduro, or do they begin to break off and support the new government? If they do the latter, if we see support for this new government, then I do think there may be things that the United States and other nations can do. Outside, we've condemned them, as have many other nations, seeing Maduro as an illegitimate president. But there's very little we can do inside Venezuela. It's really up to the Venezuelan people and, in the end, the military. Well, I think the new president – well, I guess I'm wondering – Were you surprised that the military did not go with the new president at the get-go? It seems like that is the time when we typically see uh, military arms make their choice. 
No, I was not surprised because when we look at Maduro's government, it is in many ways already a military government. You see a whole host of governors or military officers. The military controls the energy sector. It controls the distribution of food within Venezuela. They are really, this is a military government in many ways, even though Maduro himself is not a military man. So I'm not surprised that the leadership hasn't left him. How about the other neighboring countries in Latin America, um, not that they're in the you know, pillars of strength themselves, but is there anything they can do um, besides you know, welcoming the three million refugees that have, that have fled uh, Venezuela? Well, you've seen most of these other governments around Venezuela uh, deny the legitimacy of Maduro as well, so come out for Guaido as, as the president, the legitimate president, interim president. Um, you know, the other thing that Latin American nations could do, which the United States has done, is put sanctions, put sanctions on individuals in Venezuela for human rights abuses, for corruption and the like, not let these people spend their money or their families spend their money in Latin American countries or go through their banks. Um, so you, so Latin America could step up that financial pressure, that economic pressure on Venezuela, along with the rhetorical condemnation that we've seen. Shannon, we have to have allies. I would suggest that this is a United States. I, oh, here's a headline that's out right now. This is exceptionally important. Shannon O'Neill, let me please interrupt. The Federal Aviation Agency has announced that they have halted flights into New York City's LaGuardia airport on an ATC staff shortage. In Davos, that's all I have. The Federal Aviation Administration halting flights into New York's LaGuardia on ATC staff shortage. We'll have much more on that on Bloomberg Radio. Our Michael Barr and John Tucker, no doubt, working on that uh, carefully here in New York. And we'll distribute that to our uh, audience worldwide and coast to coast as so many come into uh, LaGuardia. Shannon, I hope you weren't going out of LaGuardia today. I just got back yesterday, so I'm I'm good. That's good. You're good, and I'm coming in. I don't know at some point, but the Gulf Stream doesn't go into Laguardia, so I'll be I'll be okay. Shannon, you need to write a new book on uh, Latin America. I'm going to give you an open question here. One final uh, question: You have such a scope and scale. Which nation besides Venezuela has the O'Neill attention right now? Well, you know, I just returned from Argentina yesterday, and so I'm thinking a lot about Argentina, looking at Macri 2019 as a year he's going to face a presidential election. We've seen the IMF down there giving them not one but two agreements and some $57 billion that's coming into that nation. So watching what happens there with the economy, with the elections come next October, and then what happens to Argentina after the elections, whoever wins, whether it's Macri or, or one of the Peronists. So I've been watching that. Very good. I'm going to uh, be very direct, folks. A single red headline across the Bloomberg FAA halts uh, flights into New York's LaGuardia. We'll get to in a moment. Shannon O'Neill on short notice. We are thrilled that you and Ricardo Hausman and Daniel Jurgen could join us uh, today with perspective on hydrocarbons, Hausman's Venezuela, and of course, Shannon O'Neill at CFR on all of her abilities on Latin America. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.